We are in the book of Job. Does that surprise anybody? (laughs) Week 12, we have for 28 chapters watched four men debate the question that is on all of our hearts at one point or another in our life. And that's the question, why do people suffer? Of course, when it's about us and ours, we don't say it quite so philosophically, right? How, how do you ask it when it's about you? Why me? <laughs> Same question. And just as hard to find answers as Job's friends have found it. They have argued to a standstill. Job's friends are stuck in their idea that great disaster is the result of great sin. And even though they have been unable to identify that sin in Job, they still sit silently condemning. Job sits entrenched in his position that he doesn't deserve this and in fact would love for God to show up and explain himself. And now there's silence. And a new character enters the story. His name is Elihu. And we're going to read his contribution, starting in chapter 32. Now, this was an interesting sermon to put together because Elihu is the source of a lot of controversy and opposing viewpoints as to what role he plays in this debate. Our eyes might just glaze over at the thought of reading more, moralizing on suffering. Some would dismiss him because of the anger and the judgmentalism that he he shows. But as we're going to see, his pedigree and then also the fact that he is given six chapters and is completely unchallenged by Job or his friends. And it precedes the coming of God himself to answer. That that much time was given means that there is something really important for us to learn here. So I'm going to read the first five verses to begin with. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. I'm just going to continue reading. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should reach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. So do not say, we have found wisdom, let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. 
Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. But now, Job, listen to my words. So what do we learn about Elihu in these opening verses? Well, more is said to introduce us to Elihu than any of the other friends. The name Elihu means he is my God. And his father's name, Barakel, means God blesses. He is a Buzite. I still don't know how to say that, but he's a descendant of Buzz, to infinity and beyond, yes. <laughs> Buzz was a nephew of Abraham. And so Elihu represents Jewish perspective in the story. Up until now, the arguments that Job and his friends have engaged in represent the common thinking of that part of the world uh, throughout the cultures. Call it karma, what we've called the retribution principle, that you get what you deserve. Live a good life, you'll be blessed. Live a bad life, you'll be judged. That was the common thinking. And so Elihu is going to bring some of the understanding about suffering that was more common, not at the time of the story, which was a thousand years earlier than the writing, but at the time of the writing, to open up the conversation. So that's the first thing. He represents Jewish perspective. He also offers a fresh perspective. He is not part of the peer group of Job and his friends. Every generation has a certain group think certain worldview. My dad's generation coming out of World War II had a certain view of patriotism and our country. Uh, my generation, boomers, tend to see the world through a post-Vietnam War, Watergate, Woodstock. We see the world through all that. And in the same way, millennials grew up in a certain culture that has given them a perspective. Well, Elihu represents a different generation and therefore a different voice, a different perspective. He doesn't have the same blind spots that Job and his friends may have, even with all the wisdom they've acquired over the years. I want to point out something. The fact that he's younger means that it was a very brave act, or it could be a very foolish act, for him to speak up. I mean, it was in my lifetime. You could have been smacked at the dinner table for speaking out to your elders, Back then, the, the tradition was that much stronger. It's why he sat silently and just listened. But since they've talked themselves out, he's going to step into it. Give him credit, or at least sympathy, or something. Therefore, he's an independent voice. Then finally, and this is really critical, Elihu sets the stage for God to have his say. In fact, he actually begins... God's own defense of himself. He's the warm-up act. When God does show up, which we're going to look at next week, we would not make the connection between what God's saying and the story of Job quite as well without Elihu. We wouldn't understand why God answers the way he does, because frankly, he doesn't answer. God is not going to explain himself to Job. 
if that were to happen and they were just stuck in this dead silence, we'd all be sitting there going, hmm, how did we get here from there and what are we supposed to be left with? Elihu is the one that gives us an opening up of ideas so that when God steps in, it becomes an aha moment. Because of that, he's a very important part of the book. Now let's look at Elihu's case against Job and his friends. As I said, he's, he's angry at everybody. What's the source of that anger? Could it be that he's just caught up with the emotion of the dialogue? The debate started cordial, but by the time it was done, it was ugly. Is he just caught up with that? Or is it possible that it's a righteous anger? I don't know for sure what the answer is, but I think we can learn a bit when we look at the reason for the anger. Job's friends, and Job even, are mad at each other. Would you say that's probably true? Because they haven't won the debate. The one time I remember getting mad in a conversation, (laughs) it was because either I didn't win my point, which I was so certain of, or at least my point didn't get a fair hearing. I'm famous in my family for saying, I don't need to win the argument, I just need to be heard. Middle child, does that surprise any of you? (laughs) They're angry at each other because of the way this has gone. I think partially Elihu is angry on behalf of God. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit when we look at Elihu's case against Job and his friends. He's angry with friends because in his mind they've lost the argument but continue in their condemning of Job. Even though they failed to point out any great sin in Job that would prove their theory, they're still sitting there silently stewing and quietly condemning him. But he's angry at Job too. Let's begin in chapter 33 and start reading at verse eight. But you have said in my hearing, he's saying to Job, and I heard these very words, quote, I am pure, I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on my paths. But I tell you, Job, in this, you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? Go to chapter 34, and I'm going to read starting at verse 5. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked, for he says there is no profit in trying to please God. Chapter 35, verse 16 Elihu concludes, so Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. Elihu's case against Job is that he has defended his honor at the expense of God's. Now, here is what I think is the most important part of Elihu's case against Job and his friends. I want to put it on the screen and I'd like you to consider it. 
Both Job and his friends have reduced God by their arguments. You say, well, how have they done that? Well, his friends see God as a utilitarian force programmed to respond to reward good and punish evil. To them, God is a force to be manipulated for prosperity or for law and justice. How has Job reduced God? To Job, God is a silent enemy. He uses that word. Fickle and arbitrary in his dealings with people. And frankly, he needs to explain himself. Now, we have been very careful to point out, and I want to state it again, that Job does not lose his faith during this entire time. But we also said from the very beginning that Job is not perfect. Righteous and sinless are two very different things. Like all of us who have come under the grace of God, Job is a righteous sinner. At the beginning, all these incredible tragedies, Job says some of the most noble things that we all admire and wish we could respond to tragedy in that way. But as time has worn on, and as his friends have brought more despair and more difficulty to him, and as his anger has been stirred by them, he gets thin. And some of the underlying things that are his issues begin to emerge. And basically, he says, God's not dealing with me fairly. God doesn't deal with the world fairly. And frankly, I wish he'd just show up and explain himself. And that also is a diminishing of God because he's asking God to explain himself to him. Think about it. Does Elihu have a case? Yeah, it seems he does. Yeah, he's angry, sarcastic. But who of us would want our content to always be judged by our attitude in sharing it? In responding to this case he makes against Job and his friends, we see some really important insights that Elihu has to share. Go back with me to chapter 33. We're going to pick up at verse 14. But God does speak, now one way and now another, though no one perceives it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword, or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones. He's developing in this section an explanation that says, you know, Job, you're saying God's silent, but I think God is speaking. I just think you're not listening to him in the way he's communicating. And he brings up at least two ways God communicates to us. The first is through word, through revelation. In this case, it's visions and dreams or a voice. Remember that in Job's day, a contemporary of Abraham, they didn't yet have any written scripture. Abraham's communication with God was direct revelation. And so we could see this as God's word. So God communicates through his word. 
But then he goes on and says, God communicates even through the suffering itself. Even though Job is saying God is silent, he's saying, no, God's not silent. He's speaking, but you're not listening for this particular type of communication. The next point is some fresh ideas that he has about suffering. So far, our friends have seen suffering exclusively through the lens of punishment for sin. And what Elihu does is he reminds them and us that sometimes suffering can be used by God and God allows it for specific purposes. And he he lists three. I want to read them again. Verse 17. He does this to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride to preserve them from the pit. So three ways that God speaks or works in suffering. The first is conviction, to turn them from wrongdoing. This is preemptive in nature. God sometimes saves us from the worst decisions that we're contemplating by stepping in and bringing upheaval into our lives. How many of you can think of a time where you were contemplating a sinful, disastrous decision in your life and a time of crisis brought you back to your spiritual senses? Anybody? Or here's another scenario. How many of you grew up in a setting where besetting sins, addictions, or, or destructive behaviors were part of the life that you grew up in? You were a victim of perhaps your parents or others who had influence over you, and their destructive decisions caused a lot of suffering for you. But consequently, that suffering and seeing that destruction has led to your making better decisions. How many of you would say that that's true of your life? You see, God uses suffering in a way that moves us away from wrongdoing. The second thing that God uses suffering for, according to Elihu, and I think it's fair, is to bring about humility in our life, to keep them from pride. We are going to see that this is, in fact, the sin that Job will be convicted of and for which he will confess and repent. I think the lesson there for us is that for righteous people, the sin that Satan can most easily push us into is pride. Think about that. I'm going to say it again. For righteous and good people, the sin that Satan can most easily push us into is pride. One of the lessons about hand-to-hand combat is that you use your enemy's momentum against them, right? Satan does that really well with Christians. Satan is perfectly happy just to derail you a little bit. He'll take you and say, all right, you want to do good things? I can do good things. And then push you towards pride over it. In the New Testament, those people were called Pharisees. We should all beware because any of us could become that. Hardship breaks us free from the retributive principle and reminds us that God is at work in us and it's not because I deserve it, it's because I'm loved, it's because of God's grace. And then the third thing is salvation, to keep them from the pit, eternal destruction. Yeah, sometimes God only has our attention 
We only look up when we're laying flat on our backs. <laughs> as long as life is good, we don't have to worry about eternity. We don't have to worry about God. And if God wants to do business with us, He'll knock us on our back so that we're looking up. All of a sudden, the big questions matter. Eternity matters. God matters. How many of you would admit it was a crisis in your life that got you thinking about Jesus? Sure. Praise God for that suffering. As hard as it was, it opened you up to new life in Him. This is not meant to be a justification for suffering, but it sure helps us recognize that God can use it. There's nowhere in the Bible, including in the chapter we will study next week, where God actually defends himself about suffering. But what he does promise is he'll be with us in it. Christ said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. The shepherd's psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's the fourth man in the furnace. He's the angel of the Lord in the lion's den. And he is constantly present in our most difficult circumstances. He promises that. And then he promises he won't waste any of it for his children. Now, I don't believe God's the cause of all of our suffering, but make no mistake, God allows all of it. And he has a redemptive purpose for it if we're willing to see it. Elihu reminds us of that. Praise God. Now, before I go on, I do want to say something that I've been wanting to say for several weeks, and this is the ideal time to say it. We are talking in this story about a particular form of suffering that is undeserved, unexpected, and overwhelming, and how we respond to that. But I want to be clear, that's not all suffering. There is suffering that comes from disobedience. And most people who are experiencing that form of hardship know it. They know why it's happening. There is suffering that occurs because we are living in disobedience. There's also what I call suffering for stupidity's sake because we're just making dumb choices. And then we go, God, what are you doing? God says, not me if, you if. <laughs> Little King James there. There is suffering for Christ's sake. Jesus said, you're gonna be persecuted for my name. Rejoice in that. We should never say, God, what are you doing when we suffer for the name of Jesus? We should rejoice, Scripture says. But I want to talk about a fourth type of suffering that I want to be very clear this sermon series is not directed to. And that is those who experience suffering because of the abusers in your life. Physical, emotional, verbal, sexual. And in a church this size, there's no doubt that there are those who are not only victims of that, but some of you are actually perpetrators of it, living a lie. I don't know who, but that's probably true. And I want to say to the perpetrators, God will have his day with you. Make no mistake. But there is grace available if you turn from that. 
But I want to say to those of you that are victims of it or whose children are victims of it and you know it's taking place, you should get out of that setting. You should liberate yourself from that harm and you should get your children out of that, period. I want to be 100% clear about that. Do you think for a minute if the Holy Spirit had prompted Job that in a little bit his family was going to be killed by a tornado, that it would be ungodly for him to call them and say, hey, get out of that house? Of course not. It's that there was no warning and there was nothing that he could do that left him having to respond the way he is. But you have a way out and I ask you to have the courage to take it. And if we can help you in some way, please speak to us. We'll hold you in confidence and, and we'll help as best we can, all right? All right, now let's step back into this suffering and let's talk about the third insight that Elihu gives us and it's this, God is great beyond comprehension and will not answer to anyone. In fact, that is so important a point that it deserves its own slide. Let's say it together. God is great beyond comprehension and does not answer to anyone. He's angry that by this lengthy argument, this pointless argument, God has been reduced to someone who either is obliged to respond to our expectations or must answer for himself. And his reminder is just the opposite. I, I just want to read a, a few verses to get us thinking about this. Chapter 36 I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which people have praised in song. All humanity has seen it. Mortals gaze on it from afar. I love this verse. Verse 26. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming of the storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. Here's what's happening right here. Remember, this is a Shakespearean drama. It's poetry that's being acted out before our eyes. Elihu is at center stage. And as he's speaking, the scenery is changing. It's getting dark on stage. Clouds are rolling in. You can hear thunder in the background. And he's so moved by it that he just goes with it. He continues, at this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. There's a storm rolling in. He says in verse 14, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders 
Do you know how God controls those clouds and makes his lightning flash? Now, the reason why I am virtually certain that a storm is actually rolling in at this moment is because when he finishes his speech at the end of chapter 37, the first verse of chapter 38 says this, and God spoke from the storm. Woo! Do you get the picture? Elihu is sort of like the opening act or the announcer at the heavyweight fight, laying out the pedigree of the great champion who's about to take center stage. And God is giving him background music. (laughs) Thunder and lightning rolling in from a distance. Elihu is setting the stage for God and he's saying, behold how great our God is. And then God shows up and has his say. Well, with that in mind, let me just give you two takeaways for this week, and we'll wrap up. First takeaway, and this is very important, the wrong response to suffering is any response that diminishes our view of God. The wrong response to suffering is any response that diminishes our view of God. We've been watching Job and his friends. We side with Job. We know that he's in the right about the suffering. But to the degree that Job has allowed his thinking to ask God to answer to him, even Job's response at this point has diminished our view of God. And what that tells us is that even righteous people can contribute to this. Here's the problem with that. When our arguments diminish our view of God, that God will definitely disappoint you. Because that's not the God who is God. The wrong response to suffering is any response that diminishes our view of God. And then finally, we can embrace suffering even when kept in the dark by God for how he will use it in our lives. We can embrace it. We don't need to understand it. But we can see God's hand in it. I will say to you, every time I've been in tragedy and I've looked for God's hand, I have found it. Sometimes it's just a fingerprint. (laughs) Sometimes it's a guiding finger. Sometimes it's a full embrace. But you look for God in your hardship, he'll be there. You just have to look for how he's showing up, not how you want him to show up. He's there. And he promises he will not waste any of it. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Let's end by saying this verse together. Our Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That middle phrase, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Thank you, Captain Obvious. I don't like that kind of training. Who does? But I can embrace that kind of training for the gold in my life that God's going to produce. Father, forgive us for ever thinking that you should answer to us 
and for the many subtle ways we fall into that and step back from our walking with you, waiting on you to provide answers that may never, ever come because what you want is for us to be humble before you and to yield to that training in our lives, that work of transformation. Father, we want that. We all admit to you, we don't want the suffering. We don't, Father. And even as I admit that I ask for deliverance from suffering for those here who are in the midst of it, but yet even in asking for that, I ask that all of us would surrender to the loving hand of God in it who produces eternal transformation. In Jesus' name, amen.